Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode, I look at a work of Philip K. Dick. Um, and these days, we're looking at the stories of 1954. And um, the story we're going to look at today is The Short Happy Life of the Brown Oxford, which is about a, a, a shoe that can move. Uh, it's It actually was for a long time the cover story on one of the volumes of the collected stories of, of Philip K. Dick. And maybe you can still find uh, versions that uh, have, have that. And there's actually a picture of a kind of big shoe floating in the sky. So anyways, it's it seems kind of silly, but it, it's, it, it's not a horrible story. It, it has a little bit of value to it. It's actually a sequel. It's the first of Philip K. Dick's very cl clear sequels. He doesn't have many. Uh, I mean, he's got like the Valis trilogy, but the three stories are totally disconnected. They don't really have any, they have some common themes, but they're not in the same universe. And you have Radio Free Albemuth and Valis, which it's real. that's more of like a revision. Uh, Valis is kind of a, a revised take or a new take on Radio Free Albemuth. And I mean, maybe there's a few others. I mean, there's Jones World and Second Variety, which seems to be a sequel, but there's not too much. As, a, as I said in the previous episode on the Crystal Crip, what Dick does is he, he doesn't really world build so much, but there's so many common themes in his, in, his world, in his world that you can kind of map out a geography. You can kind of map out his broad views on geopolitics, and, and his worlds have some common um, heartbeats throughout them. But this one's a, a, a strict uh, sequel, actually. It's a sequel to... Sequel, actually. It's a sequel to... It's a... Um, the Preserving Machine. That was the name of the story. Uh, so we have the same character, Doc Lambreth, and he's again inventing a machine. In The Preserving Machine, the, the technology was a device that could record, essentially record music onto into animals' DNA or genetic structure. Um, and he thought this could preserve music in kind of biological life forms for long-term re recording. It's, it's, it's a bit of a silly idea because obviously like CDs and digital recordings are, you know, preserve a lot longer. But nevertheless, it's the idea he presents there. But what happens is they quickly kind of evolve. The animals, or the creatures evolve and they corrupt the music when they try to play back using the same machine to, to play them back. It's all distorted and, and ugly. It's it's almost a a Huxleyan view of social Darwinism, if you will. So I talk a little bit this with uh, my my companion series, the hundred pages where I look at American writers uh, besides Philip Dick, and I, I talk about Jack London's social Darwinism, and and his social Darwinism was tied to his socialism. Now, with the idea of the of so Darwinism is, of course, societies compete and the strongest will survive and prosper and dominate societies. Now, that was shared by many people in the early 20th century, both on the right and the left. Now, we tend to remember it as a right-wing philosophy, and rightfully so, but there were some left-wing social Darwinists who looked at this and said, it doesn't have to be that way, right? Yeah, the strong will dominate the weak, but... We can create institutions and policies and cultures and societies that actually can create shared prosperity for all, right? And technology could help do that. And so we could actually overcome our, 
our most negative biological urges. Now, the example that I think it's I think it's Thomas Huxley gives in an essay, Evolution and Ethics, is a gardener, right? If you just let a garden go to go the way of of Darwinian logic, you're going to get um, weeds will dominate, and no one can eat weeds. No one wants to look at weeds. It's just going to be ugly and bad, right? Or you could think of a lawn, anything like that, right? But you need a caretaker. You need a gardener to come in and pull the weeds to ensure that the vegetables, the food, the flowers, and the beautiful things survive and, and thrive, right? And societies can do that as well. Um, but, you know, but what Dick sort of prevents in the preser preserving machine is this idea that over time kind of evolution will make things kind of will bring out the worst in things right and that and it's met it's the allegory for that is the corruption of of the song all right so i don't know uh that's a bit of a, a bit of a way that this story is uh is a sequel so i'm going to talk about this story and then in the end i'm just going to say a few words about uh i'm not going to do full reviews i don't think of of philip kiddick's electric dreams but i did watch two of the episodes and i'll, I'll say a little bit about them at at the end um, so anyways, this story was first published in Fantasy and Science Fiction in January of 1954. So it's the same month that the Preserving Machine, not, not the Preserving Machine, sorry, the Crystal Crypt and the Present for Pat were, were published. So it was kind of a busy publication uh, month for, for Dick. So the plot, we, um, so Doc Lambreth is is kind of coming to the narrator's house, uh, a sudden revival like after midnight. And he has something to show the narrator. And it, it's a small matchbox. He says, I have something to show you. What, you see, what you're about to see is the most momentous thing in all of modern science. It will, the world will shake and shudder at what he sees. So you're expecting this great technology, you know, faster than light travel or unlimited energy or cold fusion or something like that. But instead he pulls out this little matchbox. And he picks up this matchbox, has a little, little button on it. He starts pushing the button. He starts pushing the button pretty vigorously, and nothing really seems to happen. And, and the doctor gets very frustrated, and he starts asking for wine. And while he, you know, the host, the narrator, who I guess is the unwilling host at this point, he brings the wine in. During this, he starts to explain his newest invention. It's the animator. He explains that the animator is based on the principle of sufficient irritation and this is based on a phenomenon he observed when he saw a pebble get up to avoid the sun he said he actually saw this and he, so he thinks there's a scientific principle that things will get up to avoid irritation so he actually creates a principle on this the scientific principle or the principle of sufficient irritation now what we might want to think about at this point before going farther is the concept of kipple Kipple is a concept Dick invents for Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And this might be one of the earliest examples of something like Kipple. Um, now, Kipple, I guess my formal definition of Kipple would be kind of waste and leftovers. And I even think Dick presents some people as, as human Kipple, right? But And that's, that's sort of how it's described. But the problem in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep for one of the characters who who comes up with this term is that the kipple seems to multiply and they seem to move and here it's just kind of like you know how trash in your house you know it seems to move you can't find your keys one day or you know something seems to get misplaced and you know kind of the the unseen garbage the, like the stuff you don't notice the the rubbish yet you don't pay attention to can kind of has a life of its own 
right? And maybe this is a proto-experiment in the concept of Kipple. I don't know. But you have this pebble actually getting up to avoid the summon. And, you know, obviously now your narrator must think that this guy's crazy, right? You know, things don't move up on their own. But Lambeth figures that the principle could be applied properly to get other things to come alive. Now, the narrator is curious and agrees to buy the device for $5, even though it seems not to work because he pushed the button and nothing happened. Um, and so that night, the narrator puts his two muddy shoes into, into the into the animator. Or is it the animator into the, the shoes? It's it's described as a as a matchbox, so um, with a with a button, so it doesn't seem to be very big. Maybe it's a, a large one. I'm not sure. Anyways, the next morning, Dr. Lambeth returns with the five dollars and he asks for the animator back. And the narrator brings it out, but reveals that one of the shoes he put in there is missing. And they begin to look for the missing shoe, eventually capturing it. The doctor is very happy, exuberant, that his device is proven to work. But Joan, the narrator's wife, is horrified and frightened by the development and decides to stay with her family, not wanting to stay along with a shoe that has apparently come to life. Right? Um... So the household item coming to life is also kind of a Philip Dickian trope. We've, we've seen it in, in Colony. And several times Dick is going to use this, uh, the concept of like a, a, of a small life form, like a subatomic life. Not, not subatomic, uh, microscopic life. Multi, single cell organisms that can form itself into any object and then be frozen or somehow preserved into a certain place. So replace you can replace manufacturing with these kinds of creatures that can make different forms. Um, so he has this kind of idea. But the problem with this is your 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 household items are somewhat alive, right? Now in colony it's a threat. It's more like the thing where it can appear like anything and then kill you or hurt you. And and that happens in that story. But here's the shoe. It doesn't seem to be threatening anyone. It's just irritated, right? It, it just doesn't want to stay uh, around. But anyways, Joan is afraid. So I guess this isn't one of Dick's more enlightened <laughs> images of, of women. Where the, the wife is just here basically to be frightened by a, a walking, self-animated shoe. So the narrator goes to work. He's not thinking too much of this, I guess. But he, he meets his wife and, and takes her home. And at home, you know, he finally says, talks her into going home with him. At home, uh, they find this shoe has escaped. Uh, so they would either need to... What exactly happens? I think they need to animate a new one. They decide they need to animate the second shoe in order to kind of follow it and find where the first shoe went. It's, it's um, you know... Part of me wants to say, like, it's not a really big deal. It's just a, a brown Oxford. It's just a shoe. Get a new pair of shoes. But anyways, they have this idea of animating the second one and then, then kind of following it or seeing where it goes or something like that to get the other shoe back. Now, Lambert calls and announces that scientists and investigators are coming to document the shoe and the success of the anima animator. And he's called the press and it's going to be a big thing. and He's going to win the Nobel Prize. And he gets all excited that he's going to get his scientific um, recognition for his great invention. And Doc Lambeth comes with two colleagues and they begin their investigation. One named Porter is excited uh, by the successful application of the quote principle of sufficient irritation. And, but the other is skeptical. Without any shoe 
to show the narrator, you know, to show there's no really no proof because the shoe ran off, the narrator begins to despair. But just as Doc Lambert arrives, they see the shoe along with the female shoe, which was actually one of Joan's party shoes, which ran off with the Brown Oxford. They're, they move in together across the lawn. The male shoe starts to dance joyfully and they move out of sight and apparently copulate. This leads Lambeth to explain that they're witnessing a profound historical and scientific event. Now, the story ends here, and we don't get to see their offspring. Now, the question is, are, are you going to then have evolutionary biology kick in at this point? What is a party shoe and a black brown Oxford going to produce through sexual reproduction? Uh, will it be a shoe, or will it be something else? I, I really want to know, uh, but we're not given that answer. Will it go the way of the preserving machine? Is it thematically the same? Is the problem, you know, these offsprings of the shoe are not going to be shoes anymore, so they're going to be something completely different. They're going to be their own life form. And the purpose of the animator gets, you know, fails that way. It's, yeah, it's, it's, there's not, perhaps not too much to say. I probably already said way too much about this story. I'm certainly, the most Philip Dick readers, when they come to this story, it's one of the ones they sigh about or they, they, they just move, you know. They just skip, you know, because it doesn't really have his. It's a bit too silly, and it's and it's fantasy, right? It it doesn't really have a science. It, science fiction context is pretty weak, right? You're not going to be able to, you know, animate shoes by irritating them too much. But anyways, let's see what we can say about this story. Well, we got the sequel. I already talked about that, and in both of the this story and the preserving machine, you have Lambeth dreaming up a fantastic invention. And his goal is to get other scientists to take it seriously. So he's he's almost a mad scientist, right? He's almost a mad scientist. The result here is ineffectual, as with the preserving machine, but it's nonetheless a profound scientific achievement. In fact, both were. In the first story, you actually have the ability to transpose music into life forms. I mean, that's a pretty amazing thing. And here you have the ability to make, not only make things move, but a lot, you know, give them the capacity to have sexual reproduction. It's, you know, it's a profound scientific achievement, but it's, it's somehow because it doesn't quite work as designed. The doctor is failing to get his scientific, you know, credit. Now in this story, he seemed to have lost his fears of the imminent decline of humanity. This is what's motivating him in the preserving machine is humanity is in decline. Culture is going to be lost. So I need to preserve it. That's not happening. He, he doesn't seem to talk about that. He doesn't talk about that at all in this story. Now, in a strange way, the animator, like the preserving machine, promises um, to save kind of an aspect of human culture. But instead of saving art and music, here the animator can preserve or bring to life consumer goods. The suggestion of the copulation between the male and the female shoe at the end promises that if, as Lambert predicts, humanity dies out, these consumer goods saved by the animator will also change over succeeding generations. We cannot know what the child of the two shoes may look like, but there's really no reason to assume that it'd be recognizable as a shoe. So this is what the doctor says. He says, so gentlemen, you can see that I did not exaggerate. This is the greatest moment in science, the creation of a new race. Perhaps when mankind has fallen into ruin, society destroyed this new life form. And then you, they witness the copulation. And then he says, gentlemen, this is incredible. We are witnessing one of the most profound and far-reaching moments of science. 
well, almost witnessing it, I said the narrator jumps in because it's kind of the the shoes, I guess they sort of close the door so no one can see what they're they're up to. So it's only at the end that we get Lambeth kind of coming back to this theme of, of humanity's imminent decline. But what's being preserved here is not high culture, but like consumer goods. So it's almost the opposite, right? But, you know, what will consumer goods become, you know, if you apply evolution to their development? So I, I think there's a lot to break down and analyze here about what consumer goods mean to us, how they seem to have a life of their own, how they seem to develop maybe without say of the people, right? Certainly there are, we know there are people that are designing the new iPhone or designing uh, these new products, but sometimes it does feel they kind of run on their own logic, right? And we probably all experience things where things turn on on their own or, you know, you know, and this is part of Dick's kind of paranoia was that consumer goods might come alive or might be able to get us. And this goes all the way back to even like the little movement, which is about toys that start attacking human beings. So this kind of idea of an of external conspiracy. This is a much more smaller tale of just like two shoes falling in love, I guess. But uh, but nevertheless, we have something here he's trying to say about consumer goods, I think. Right? And he picks like some of the most banal consumer goods, right? The the shoe. Right? Everyone has those in their house. Are they irritated? Are consumer goods upset? Right? We got this idea of the principle of sufficient irritation. So what to say about this? Well, let's see how it's defined in the story first. Here's how he describes it. This is like on page two of the story. At once the realization of the principle of sufficient irritation came to me. Here was the origin of life. Eons ago in the remote past, a bit of inanimate matter had become so irritated by something that it crawled away, moved by indignation. Here was my life's work to discover the perfect irritant, annoying enough to bring inanimate matter to life and to incorporate it into a workable machine. The machine, which is present in the backseat of my car, is called the Aminator, but it does not work. And, end quote. Oh, that, so that's, that's the size issue. Yeah, so the Aminator was bigger, but the matchbox was like what turned it on or something. Um, so... Origin of life being hypothesized here as as irritation, right? This is a big problem in cosmology, or at least, you know, Darwin explains how life changed and spread and how species emerged and died out and, and kind of that tree of life. It doesn't really explain where life comes from, right? And there's different theories on where that life comes from, everything from kind of the creationist view to, to chemical models and things like that. And people, I'm sure, are experimenting on that. Certainly, it was a mystery in Dick's time. Um, so the idea of just that, you know, the problem is in or, you know, inanimate matter, not life, has to become life through some process, right? And here it's irritation that's imagined to do it. Now, we can imagine that the shoes would already be irritated enough to walk off on their own. Right? Perhaps the animator worked on them because they were already so near the edge. Right? So the an animator doesn't seem to, to work with everything very well, right? Like the matchbox with the button thing, that, that didn't work. Right? That didn't seem to work, but the, the bigger animator worked on the shoes. Well, maybe the shoe was already pretty annoyed. Right? So it's a brown Oxford. 
what kind of shoe is a brown oxford well it's i don't know i i, I don't wear them they're they're those like uncomfortable looking office shoes those like black shoes with the short laces actually i do have one pair but they fit horribly and they get blisters on my feet and very hard kind of leather around them you have to really work them in right they're, they're not particularly um comfortable but they're work shoes that's the thing they're kind of office work shoes so they're 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 kind of this everyday use for someone that you know one of these kind of office workers like our narrator is so maybe it's already irritated from work and it just had to be pushed over the edge maybe it was ready to walk out on its own already now we have other clothing items that seem to disappear like the wife's shoe and it's not clear the animator worked on them so that was just irritated from too many parties from the wife's feet i don't know now we don't often find irritation to be a springboard for action right or i very i haven't seen many like social historians talk about irritation as something that leads people to participate in social movements or get involved in strikes Right? They'll talk about class consciousness, or they'll talk about like a movement culture, or they'll talk about you know conscious racing or something. But I haven't seen like irritation analyzed as a cause of, of social movements. But it seems it often is, right? The right there's a, a bunch of movies. Uh, the one when I wrote the blog entry on this, which I'm basing most of this off of you know what was on my mind was office space right where the guy's just going to work every day and eventually one day he just kind of snaps and has a breakdown and there's not a single event it's just all this stuff added up it's the boss it's the other co-workers it's the environment it's it's seeing how his neighbor his life seems better it's all that kind of added together and uh, yeah it's he, he realizes he's a corporate drone involved in kind of useless banal work but it's, it's actually irritation built up that causes that. And a lot of other movies about work seem to understand this. That it's really not so much when the boss yells at you or the pay cut. Or it's not like um, in Norma Ray, right? I think in that one it was it was actually the union organizer comes in and starts to raise consciousness. It's, it's not that way all the time. Sometimes it's just a built up of irritation that leads people to like lose it one day. And sometimes that losing it may be a, a social movement. The irritation caused by in in the office space it's the mundane co-workers endless chain of idiot bosses unfulfilling works but it ends up leading to a bold actions with the goal of creating the space for freedom and here we have a shoe essentially doing the same thing sick of his life venturing out to make something of himself i guess start up his own family even this is the trajectory of this animated shoe Lambeth, you know, goes further and he argues that this is maybe even the answers the question of, of abiogenesis, the origin of, of life. Where how did non-life become life at one point and start off kickstart evolution? So that's what that's what I want to say about the irritation. I you know, I just would like I'm wondering, you know, I'd like to see maybe someone research how irritation has led to social movements over time, right? You know, like did Jim Crow fall not only because of rising consciousness or radicalism or, or mobilization or movements, but just because people got sick of it after a while. They just got disgusted with it and couldn't put up with it anymore. And, you know, so I, I think there might be a radicalism in this principle of sufficient irritation if we want to apply it in certain contexts. 
So now we have a subtle undercurrent of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in the story as well. Now in Shelley's novel, the monster demands a wife for companionship. And here the animated shoe um, is irritated, like Frankenstein's monster. And he takes the direct result. He makes his own wife. Now does he use the device or he just find another irritated shoe in the wardrobe? I don't know. But we actually have, maybe for the first time, um, a relationship, a sexual relationship that's not horribly problematic. A working relationship. They're shoes, and we don't know. We, we just see the beginnings of the relationship. But unlike so many other of, of Philip Dick's relationships as described in the text, it's a happy one. And I, I think that's a nice thing to just to point out here. So you can come at this story with this um, kind of ambiogenesis narrative, like where did life begin? Uh, I think there's a lot to say about this principle of sufficient irritation. And, um, you know, maybe a little bit here about how Dick sees evolution at work. And it, it does connect to the preserving machine in the terms of the theme of, of preserving a creation of humanity you know, into a possible post-human future. And can it be preserved? Is it possible to preserve humanity's creations in the long term? In the one story, it's high culture. In this story, it's really low culture, right? Just the consumer goods. So don't skip it just because it looks silly. Um, it, it might have something to, to say to you if you're a reader of Philip, Philip Dick. I, I've literally not seen anyone really take on this, this story in any, in any detail. So um, that's it. Oh, I said I was going to talk a little bit about Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. Um, so I saw the first two episodes about it. The first is The Hoodmaker and the second, The Impossible Planet. Um, I, I think they're both quite good. I, I don't have too many complaints about it. They feel right to me. They neither are... are direct adaptations of those stories. Both take a lot of liberties, especially The Hoodmaker. Uh, in The Impossible Planet, the, the whole ending changes, and I, I won't necessarily give that away, but the ending of The Impossible Planet story is not the ending we get in, in the show. And that leaves us with a very different feel, right? Um, a very different resolution. The Hoodmaker is the one that really breaks off from the original story. Uh, the original Hoodmaker presents the telepath. So in the story of the Hoodmaker, which I haven't reviewed yet in this podcast, essentially you have a almost a Leninist vanguard conspiracy of telepaths who are trying to overthrow um, the government almost from within the government. They're, they're kind of, they're working for the government and they're part of the surveillance state, but they're working behind the scenes to basically overthrow the whole society. So they're kind of a villainous subculture. Uh, in this way, I think that story parallels like the uh, other stories about post-humans that Dick wrote, such as the, um, the world of talent, particularly the world of talent or Simon, Heal My Daughter, in which, or even the Golden Man, although in the Golden Man, it, it's done in a different way. In these stories, you have this question of, you know, should the post-humans overtake humanity. And, and is that a good thing? Or is that is that part of just human evolution? If you've watched the X-Men or if you've read the X-Men comics, you know this theme's been explored by them as well. You know, will the post-human overtake, you know, will human plus to overtake, you know, 
human minus, I guess, what are we, or null, you know, prime, whatever. Will the posthumans overtake just regular humans someday? And a lot of Dick's posthumans think, yes, this is necessity. So they, they kind of have the Magneto point of view on this, that, that the mutant is the future. And that's what's going on in the Hoodmaker. So you have this kind of subculture of, of revolutionaries. And they're almost compared to the Bolsheviks. And at one point in the story, they're actually literally said, you know, this is very much like the fascists or the Bolsheviks. You know, these minority groups trying to overtake society. So in the end, the Hoodmaker is the hero of the story because he's saving humanity from this being overthrown by the, by the telepaths. So in the story, this kind of veers off in two ways. And the one, it really emphasizes much more the, the surveillance state aspect of it. So, yeah, you have the telepaths working for the state in an effort to basically read the minds and to control social movements, all that. And you have thing a lot of the same topics are mentioned, like the anti-immunity bill, which basically abandoned people's rights to resist, um, you know, these mind readers. Now, what it also does, though, is it makes the telepaths an oppressed minority within this society. So they're hated. Um, they're attacked. They li often live in poverty. They don't seem to have jobs. They're, they're hated. No one wants to be around them. And, and I'm sure that was true in the original story of the Hoodmaker, too. Uh, at least they're not trusted, right? That's why people are putting on the, these hoods to protect themselves from the tele telepath's readings of them. But there's a really interesting scene in which you have a telepath who's like a prostitute. And I think it's a really interesting take on prostitution is because the prostitute can basically just in, implant in the mind of, of her customer some sexual acts, in, including very violent ones. And she experiences these violent events emotionally as the telepath. But she's not taking the physical harm, right? But she seems to be a very, very traumatized character. Now, at the climax of the story, the telepaths kill the hoodmaker. And it seems they are liberated to do what? To then invade people's privacy? I mean, that's not really dealt with in the story at all. Um, now, one thing that's done in this in the episode that's not in the original story is the idea of anti-psi or anti-teep, anti-telepathy mutants, right? This is taken from the world of talent. This is taken from another Philip Dick story, the world of talent, where you have people who can read minds, but then you have a special subset of mutants who can stop it, right? And like the anti-mutant is, is also a mutant, right? So they're also post-humans. Um, and that's put into the story, and I think it works. So if you look at this story as kind of a combination of the different themes of Dick's posthumans, it works. Now, the thing that I think Dick probably wouldn't agree with was making the, the posthumans as victims. They're, they're rarely presented as victims in the stories. They're often presented as threats. So I don't know why they decided to make them a, an oppressed, subjugated minority. But one thing that works here is the, the imagery of the city, the, the way the technology looks, the, the slum versus the gated community motif, which you get in a lot of Dick's fiction. You actually have a lot of that in, I think, Impossible Planet, too, that, that episode. I'll only say one more thing about this. There's a really wonderful moment where the, the telepath, it's a woman, it's a female character, 
it, you know, the policeman is asking for, it's Rob Stark from Game of Thrones, I forget the actor's name, but he's, he asks for some information and like no one knows it. And it's like no one has Wikipedia, I guess. No one has computers. And that's, the internet's mentioned by a character at one point, like the, how internet changed society the same way telepaths are. But I don't remember seeing too many people on, like looking stuff up on the internet. But the telepath can just download this stuff, kind of reading the collective mind of humanity somehow. She's able to just download this information and she kind of becomes a walking Wikipedia um, and can provide this detail for the police. And I think it was funny. She's plagiarizing the kind of the collective consciousness, but she comes off as really smart, like knowledgeable. And she gets praised for this, but essentially all she's doing is copying from Wikipedia. And if you ever taught, a college class these days and you know how students like to do that how they like to copy from wikipedia and it's really noticeable when they do it but it's i don't know if that was a shout out to that situation but it's kind of what happened in that scene so i liked it so i i like the hood maker i like what he did i like how it feels it feels right and i realized that there's no other episode in this series based on the titles and the stories we know they're looking at that that is about posthumans. so this is what we're going to get in this series, at least this season. I don't know if there's going to be more seasons in the future, which I'd like, I hope so. But if if we just get this one season, this is probably all we're going to get of Dick's posthumans. And, you know, it's it's better than, you know, what we have, which is um, next. Where Nicolas Cage, you know, it's the goal. It's the adaptation of The Golden Man. And it's nothing like the original story. Um, the Golden Man is really, I think, the cornerstone of Dick's uh, posthuman efforts. That and the world of talent. But uh, the Golden Man really explores this idea that the posthuman is going to be so different from us. They're going to be so off. They're they're not going to be human in any way. It's not. They're not like the mutants in the X Men, where the you know, they can just kind of they still have human emotions and human experiences and human ambitions and all that stuff. Not at all. In the Golden Man, you have something so not human at all that they can't jive. They almost have to be eradicated seems to be Dick's point and it's it's a pretty f- uh, frustrating realization um, there are times that post humans get along with with humans but usually they're presented as pretty off and different and really not able to be part of human society in any meaningful way D- they don't really do that here because the the teeps are sort of integrated into the economy and the workforce are just they're just the slum residents they're the outsiders so um, you get a bit of that too. So it's a combination of different. This story, the episode, the Hoodmaker, combines these Philip Dickian themes, um, and in doing so, it it makes a poor adaptation of the Hoodmaker. But I think it's a good episode of, of if you want to get an introduction to some of the things um, Dick is saying. Um, now, the Impossible Planet. Um, a lot to like in this episode, actually. I, I noticed the reviews were less favorable to this one than I think the Hoodmaker. I didn't read that many, but the few I looked at didn't seem to like this one. I liked it. It's actually up until the very last moment a fairly faithful adaptation. I had hoped we'd get to see the robot, the robot servant, and we get that here. Um, we get and the story is basically an old woman comes to a a shipping company. Uh, in the episode it's uh, it's like a tourism company, so they go on these tours. In the original story, I think it might have just been a shipping company or maybe even a military ship, but and and she bribes them basically to take her to Earth. In this, it's actually a company that does these tours, so it makes more sense that a woman would come to this kind of um, 
um, ship. We, we, we learn a little bit more about the characters. One is completely venal. He's an older man and he, he's kind of tired of his job. He hates it. He doesn't like the customers. He insults them. He thinks they're stupid. He, he often comments on kind of, they're the, they're the evidence of like the decline of humanity. The other character is more sympathetic, um, but he's having troubles at home. His girlfriend wants to like marry him or is his wife. I think it's his girlfriend wants him to move in and move, move into the city. And he doesn't want that. He wants to maybe live in a more countryside area. Into this context, you have this woman offering a lot of money to take to earth with at this point is mythical, right? Or destroyed long ago, right? No one's been there for a long time. It's actually off the charts. No one really knows how to get there. And they decide to take her to just some random planet that sort of they think might look like Earth. It has nine planet system that they can trick her into, into looking like Earth. And they take her there. And it turns out in the story, it turns out they are on Earth. Right? They are on Earth. And no one knows it, though. It's the old woman and the robot, they stay on Earth and, and they sort of die there. But they find this coin that says, you know, that's a, that's a U.S. coin. You know... E plus unum is, is on it. So it's, it's, they were on Earth. They succeeded in taking to Earth. That's not how the story ends. Um, it's actually one of the crewmen and the old woman who stay on the planet to die at the end. And they do it so for kind of an odd reason that I, that I don't necessarily want to keep, I don't want to give away or try to interpret. It's certainly not what happens at all in the story. But still, a lot to like in here. The, the idea of this tourist in experience is done so well in this episode, I think, that you have these people paying all this money to go on these interstellar voyages on these ships to see nebulas and supernovas and other things. And these are wonderful, beautiful, amazing things, right? Right, Really once-in-a-lifetime opportunities. Yet the, the, the experience is so artificial. The When they're, the tour guides are talking them through it they're bored right i loved how just how bored they sounded and they're just reading a script and in fact when it didn't look a certain color they had the ability to make it look prettier than it really was so it was in many ways a fake experience and that was really i think for me one of the thematic highlights of of this story is just that this tourist experience is fake for everyone so going to a fake earth actually fits because I think at the end of the, they, I think it's implied they never really go to Earth um, in the story. Um, they don't find a coin or any evidence that they're on Earth. It's just they, they die and they hallucinate um, at the end. There I gave away <laughs> the ending of the episode. Um, so Sorry about that if you didn't see it. But it fits with the theme that we had building up to it of, of this kind of fake tourist experience you know how tourists will go to places and they might be really beautiful but the tour guides are bored they've seen it a million times they're they hate the customers they're annoyed by them they serve them just for money i mean it's you know it's 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 all a game it's all it's all scam essentially the the tourist experience and the, actually i think mark twain knew this if you go back and read like innocence abroad he basically talks about like the hucksters who try to exploit tourists and get them to buy stuff and how kind of fake and artificial the whole experience of being a tourist is and i'll eventually um review that work i'm sure on, on, on my main podcast when i get to mark twain so this is kind of an, a, a long-standing theme and it's very much in what i think philip k dick would say about tourism i can't think of any works now that 
deal with tourism that he wrote. He's dealt with commuting. He's dealt with travel. He's dealt with exploration. But never, as far as I recall, does he really deal with with tourism. So it's. But I think this is exactly what he would say about it: is that it's a fake experience. So in that sense, I really like the episode. The other stuff they they added. I don't know if they really worked for me. I just think. I think this episode and the other dive a little bit too much into like unnecessary ambiguity, which aren't really always in the story. It's seen as like, I think, I don't know if it's because people wanted all the way back to Blade Runner, people interpreted like maybe Deckard's an Android or something. Right. And adding ambiguity that isn't there. You know, yes, there is ambiguity in some of Philip Dick's stories. In fact, many of them, but it's, it's not, it's not what he can be reduced to. And I worry a little bit at this point that the series might be trying to reduce Philip Dick to kind of every every story ends with a question mark. And I don't think that's fair. I think many of his stories have definite endings, definite themes and things he's trying to say, things he tried to say. And they're not endless, you know, question marks. Right. He even wrote a book called The Penultimate Truth. And that seems to imply, yeah, there's an ultimate truth that's unknown. But it's not that far, right? Actually, even in that story, the penultimate truth, there is a reality that's reached by the characters. So the title's a bit elusive in that way and, and not, not entirely accurate. So I, I'm babbling on here, but I don't, I hope this series doesn't just become, you know, every episode ends with this, you know, question mark about what happens. I, I hope, you know, because the, when he, when they're on touch, when they're on point, and they're making a clear thematic point, like tourism is a fake, artificial, constructed experience about making money, or that, you know, that there are people in our on our worlds who are excluded and exiled, and essentially, you know, well, the you know, the kipple of the world. These things do exist, and. I think those are all really in the heart of Philip K. Dick's writings, and I like that they're there, and I'm glad the filmmakers are getting there, but I don't like just how they seem to throw in dream sequences and weird coincidences and things that are supposed to be ambiguous when they don't have to be, right? Because we have nice stories already, and I, I think that might, this goal of, of of tr of reduce this goal of making everything an ambigu ambiguity may, may hamper the series. That's what I think might happen. But I'll, I'll keep talking about this when I watch the rest of the episodes. But you know, good so far, I think, uh, and worth watching. So with that, I will will sign off, and uh, I'll see you next time with another Philip Big Story as we continue our long voyage, our long. Um, journey through the stories of 1954. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, please leave your comments or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. If you like this, please rate, uh, subscribe, or share, or, or even venture over to my 100 Pages Cast, which is on the same channel, so you can get two for one. And there I look at other American writers. Currently, I'm looking at the, the stories and novels of Jack London. So again, thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.